0: Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. Well, hey there, and welcome back to our summer study. This summer, we're going to be studying 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because we wanted to keep this going. We wanted to keep on giving you new content, keep on giving you scripture throughout your summer as you're doing your jobs, as you are doing internships, as you are maybe doing some online classes, just something to keep a little bit of a constant in your life where there seems to be not so much of that. And so we decided to start off with the book of Titus because Titus was going to be the book that we studied during spring retreat, but because of this pandemic we're having, that got canceled. So we wanted to give you Titus, and then after that we're going to give you First and Second Timothy. But uh, we're taking these chapter by chapter each week, so that means that today we're on Titus chapter 2. Last week, John gave you a recap of what we talked about during Titus chapter 1. So And, uh, and a quick recap for you, Titus is a follower of Paul. He is somebody who is doing the work with Paul, uh, sometimes directly with him, sometimes Paul sends Titus out to do some work. Uh, So he's doing um, a lot of of Greek church plants as well as keeping in contact with the churches that have already been planted, they're sustaining, he's helping to maintain their growth, he's helping to maintain uh, their health. And so, so Paul is sending Titus out on these, uh, on these missions, these errands to do, and at some point Paul decides to write Titus this letter. And we know at this time, because Paul says it in chapter 1, but Titus is in Crete working with a uh, church there. And so uh, Crete, if you're unfamiliar with it, is an island in Greece. And the Cretans are known to be nasty. They're known to be drunkards. They're known to be arrogant angry, violent, greedy, and liars. The Cretans are not people that we want to strive to be. And so Titus is really getting into the nitty-gritty of what it means to be in the church and to lead people in the church. And so starting off in chapter two, uh, this is a call to teach sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine is this word that it's essentially, if you don't know what doctrine is, doctrine is statements of belief about God or about Christianity and so sound doctrine meaning things that make sense anything that's not heresy things that we believe to be true because anybody can say doctrine and it could be their beliefs about god and so sound doctrine means it, it means a a collective a, a f- affirmable a and agreed upon doctrines and uh, and something that is, is rooted in scripture. So um, that so sound doctrine, that is what he's referring to. And he starts it off in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so uh, there's a couple different ways that we need to approach sound doctrine in the 21st century. So first of all, there has to be this question of how do we know that what we are teaching is sound? And I've already listed a couple examples of how we can determine those, but there is a lot more to that. So uh, one way to know if doctrine is sound is if it's written in the Bible, especially the things that Jesus himself specifically says. When Jesus talks about the commandments and he talks about which of these is the greatest commandments and he talks about his his role in, in death and resurrection and conquering sin, then we can believe that to be true because it is out of the mouth of Jesus himself, who is Proved himself to be a reliable source, if you ask me. So, uh, so if it's in the Bible, that's a pretty good determination to say that it's sound doctrine. Nowhere in the in the Bible does it say that adultery is good. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that murder is good. And so, um, so we can take that into account. But. Th- you guys know the world, you know, it's a lot more complex than just the things that the Bible specifically has to say, because it's written 2000 years ago, when they didn't have some of the problems that we face today. Now, a lot of these things they, they were struggling with. And frankly, they struggle with probably a lot more than we have to struggle with today. Um, but we can take clues of, of what Jesus has said in the past and apply them to other situations. A big example of this might be something like abortion. Jesus doesn't specifically talk about it because it's not actually an issue at the time, but it is an issue for us today. And we can take into account the things that Jesus has to say about murder and about loving one another and about loving especially the little ones. And we can make our interpretive judgments based off of that. At CCF, we're a part of this movement it's called the restoration movement and it's not its own separate branch of of religion it's not this big split in the church it's not like when the protestant church split off from the catholic church and created a bunch of division but rather in the early 1800s there was a couple of people that decided to start up this this new movement this new wave of christianity a new way of thinking about how the church can respond a guy by the name of barton stone and a family a father and son named Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell that decided to start this movement. And it was known for the longest time as the Stone Campbell movement, but honestly, that doesn't really have much of a ring to it, and it doesn't really get to the heart of what, we, what, uh, what it tried to accomplish. And so recently we decided to name it the Restoration Movement. And we named it that because it really gets to the heart of what we believe about the Bible. In the very beginning of the Bible, God creates the universe, and then God creates humans. And very quickly, humans sin and break that relationship with God, causing a chasm between the two. And for the rest of the Bible and for the rest of church history from Genesis chapter four onwards is God's relentless pursuit to bring his people back to him, to restore that relationship with him. And it is our response as human to strive to work towards that relationship again, to restore the world that we see in genesis chapter 2 but the it, the thing that i love about the restoration movement is is not that idea of restoration i mean it is that i do love that but the thing that i really love about the restoration movement is that above all we focus on unity see since the beginning of the church since humans are the ones who are carrying out everything there's been a lot of problems and there's been a lot of division and especially you can see that when the protestant movement starts but then once that happens, all of a sudden a bunch of other people are breaking apart for different reasons. The reason why we have so many different denominations today is because people are like, Well, you think that and I think that and and I don't want to be a part of what you're doing anymore. And it's the reason why we see so many churches split over the last several hundred years. And and the restoration movement really focuses on the things that unite us. The fact that Jesus came down to this earth and bore a cross, carried our sins to the grave, and rose three days again. Everything else besides that is really not that important when you think about it. Things in terms of like how you you choose to do baptism. Is it immersion? Is it sprinkling? When does that happen? These things are important questions to have, but they shouldn't define our faith. They shouldn't define everything that we believe about God. Communion is something that we should practice, that we should continue to do regularly, but we're not so much caught up in the fact of how we do it, but we're more so just caught up in the fact that we do it together. So it doesn't matter if you take it every week, every month, every other week, and it doesn't matter if you take it by dipping a piece of bread in a wine glass or by getting a, a tray passed to you with a cup. or it doesn't, it doesn't matter how it happens. What's important is that it does happen because that's our time that we get to focus on Jesus. And so the, the way that we think about sound doctrine is there's really only one core thing and that's Jesus was the Son of God he is who he says he was and he did the things that the gospel writers said that he did especially the death, resurre- the, death the death and resurrection of him and so our sound doctrine is that we focus on what unites us rather than what doesn't that sound just like something that Jesus would have taught in his life? Jesus was obsessed with trying to bring people together over a common good. And so for that reason, he challenged us to think about the way that we interact with God. And he challenged us to, to learn to think about a new way to accept him and to be united on that front. But Because before Jesus came, the world was so chaotic and dispersed. You have very 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 stark differences between rich and poor you have stark differences in religion especially even in jesus's own religion judaism where there are jews and there are gentiles and you really don't interact together that much but then what does that do for the gentiles and when jesus comes he says my faith is for you and it's for you and it's for the rich it's for the poor it's for the jews for the gentile for the outcast and for the foreigner it's for everybody But what does a sound doctrine exactly look like in practice? Well, Paul continues to write, he says, older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine They are to teach what is good and to train the young women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, we have to understand when we read that passage that this was written for a society in the ancient time. This is written specifically to Titus when he's working with the Cretans in the first century. And so what that means is that women had different roles and men had different roles and they were very stereotypical. Now here's the great news is that men's roles have changed and here's the better news is that women's roles have changed. See, no longer is society the way that it was, no longer is it where the men stayed at home and they really had three duties to cook, to clean, to take care of family and create the family to give birth. No longer is that their primary primary responsibilities and the men have more responsibilities than to go out to make money and to come home and rest and relax. No, no we both, men and women, equally share these responsibilities in most households today. And that is great news for us, but here's also the bad news. Because we are taking on more responsibility, that means we have more of an obligation to live the way that Paul is telling Titus that the, the people need to behave. See, no longer should we really read that older men as only men, only adult males can be uh, should be this characteristic, and no longer can we say that the, the women should be this way, or that the younger men should be this way, really... We have all of these responsibilities, Responsibilities, no matter your age or your gender. See, because if we have more responsibilities in our daily lives, we have more things that we need to be walking with Jesus in. Now that women have more of a role in society, now that they're going to work, and now that they are, are doing more than just taking care of a family, yes, they are still doing that, but so are our husbands' uh, roles supposed to be And and both people are going to work and both people are taking care of family. Both people are responsible for putting food on the table. Both people are responsible for cleaning up after themselves. That means that, that all these other responsibilities, the, the the ways that Titus directs, or that Paul directs Titus to tell the Cretans to behave, the way that we are supposed to, is is even more so because we're adding more of that responsibility to the, the, the societal and spiritual responsibilities. Paul writes... Right after that, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of the good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, when he says in all respects, he means in all things and all places. And hopefully that's obvious, but... To some of us, it's not. See, there's a really classic definition of integrity that I'm sure you've probably heard before, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again. Is that integrity is about doing the same thing in public as you would in private. More specifically, even doing the same thing in private as you would in public. Integrity does not mean going out and... just use a modern example here. Integrity is not about going out and being a part of the protests that are happening around the city, but then to come home and to not do anything more about it. Or it's not about going out and being a part of the protest, but then coming home and you were really only there to, to, to make a public appearance, to make yourself look nice. No, integrity is about believing the same thing and acting the same way in everywhere that you are. And so really what integrity winds up doing is, is it lets us be a model to all the people around us. It lets us be a model for others. Here's a fun fact of life that should be pretty obvious to you. During the time that we are 0 to 18 we learn the most from our parents and hopefully that's pretty obvious to you because a lot of us are pretty similar to the parents because we spend so much time with them and we have a really deep relationship with our parents at least I hope that you do. It's the reason why we develop a lot of our specific traits from our parents. My mom is a very hospitable woman and I have learned that because I've seen her be hospitable her entire life i have gained that attribution from her but i've wor- i've learned my worth work ethic from my dad because my dad has been consistent every single day in his life trying to just get whatever job he has done if your household tends to vote a certain way growing up you are more likely to vote that exact same way because of the relationship and the influence that our parents have on our lives and this mere fact just proves that relationships and consistency are the best way to teach someone that teaching somebody is not just a three-minute part of the day teaching somebody is not me doing this in a podcast with you but teaching somebody is walking alongside them it's it's getting to spend much time with them There's another phrase that I I probably quote too often. If you spend any time with me, you've definitely heard it before, but it's that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. See, if I'm some random stranger saying these all to you, then it probably has less of an impact than some of my closest friends and some of my closest students because I've earned the right to talk to them. I've earned the right to say things to them. I've earned the right to try to tell them how to live their life in a way that Jesus commands us to do. It's the reason why we don't really like those milk crate preachers. You know, those people that are on your campus that stand on a milk crate with a megaphone and preach damnation to everybody because of condoning specific sins and, and yelling, oh, well, well this city lets gay people marry. marry. And so th- everybody in this city is going to hell. We don't like those people because, first of all, a lot of them aren't teaching what we believe to be true about the Bible. But also, we don't like them because who are they to tell us these, these things? We don't listen to them. We, we give it just one ear and out the other. And because they have no relationship, they just go town to town or they go to the same spot every day and they don't listen to people. They they want people to listen to them. But that's not how relationships work. Relationships work by by spending time with one another to understand their differences and to work together to, for those differences and to understand the things that unify us and to focus on those things instead. Nobody cares what they have to say because they don't care about us. Even think of this in your professors. Think about the professors you like the most. Aren't those the ones that stay after class to talk to you? Aren't those the ones that are very visible on campus? Aren't those the ones that are actually there for their office hours instead of just sending their TA to help you? Aren't those the ones that are actually on your side? Of course it is. The best relationships I had with my professors was the ones that I got to see outside of class, the ones that I called on a first-name basis, the ones that that gave out their cell phone number on the syllabus to say, hey, if you need me, I'm here for you. Because that means the world to us. And so when Paul is saying that in all respects we have to do all these things, this is the reason why. Because if you're that type of person that shows that you care but then goes home and does things that are not in the same regard, then people are going to see that and they're going to understand that you don't actually care. In verse 9, Paul goes on to say bond servants, or maybe your translation says the word that's more accurately, slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and non-argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, we have to remember this is written to a specific time where slavery was a societal norm. But slavery was not race-based. Slavery was not discrimination-based. Slavery was debts owed and people repaying those debts. There would be people that would... The, the master would loan out money in exchange for service for several years to a lifetime, depending on on what, what the need was. Uh, or a lot of times, families would... Uh, Put up a child for slavery as a means of income. it's It's not the way that we think about it today. It's still bad. It's still not not the best thing, but it's it's certainly different than the way that we constantly think about slavery as twenty first century Americans. But ultimately, slaves are servants in this time. Slaves are the bond servants are the people that, are dedicated towards the the good of the people that that they consider themselves a servant to, and that society considers themselves a servant to. And guess what? When Jesus came, Jesus talked a lot about being a servant to people. He talked a lot about being in, submissive and, in submission and in service of one another at all times. To Jesus washing people's feet, Jesus healing people. These are all examples of Jesus promoting servant leadership and since we are to follow Jesus we are also called to be servants and that means that we have these responsibilities too. The good news is that, is that we don't have a, such, such a thing as slavery anymore but the, the bad news is we have the responsibilities of slaves if we're really following the way that, that Jesus calls us to. If we're really trying to be servants and lead through service And lastly, in verses 11 through 15, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now, there's a lot of things that we could take and learn from this passage. There's a lot of things that we could take and and talk about, but the thing that sticks out to me every single time I read this passage is waiting. Because when we think about the top commandments to the church, I think immediately of the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching to observe all that I've commanded and know that I'm with you till the end of the age. See, so there are so many verbs right there because he says go. He's commanding us to to not stay at home, to not be silent about things. And he's saying to uh, to baptize in the name. So he's saying just to tell people about Jesus, to baptize them in his name. And he's saying to teach uh, and to observe and to know that he's with us until the end of the age. There's six verbs in that statement. And And here's the thing about the Great Commission is that those six verbs are really what Jesus calls us to do. That that is what our our lives are supposed to be dedicated to until Jesus decides to return again, or until we get to see him in heaven, whichever one comes first. And in this time, our duty is to wait. Not even a pandemic changes that. Until we die or until Jesus comes again, we have to add waiting on top of all that. I don't know about you, but I kind of hate waiting. Think of, think of the times that you've been at the DMV and you've had to wait for your number to be called which seems like it takes forever. Maybe you're waiting in line or at the drive through at the bank and and you're maybe even running late to work. Have you ever waited in line at, at a grocery store for way too long and you're like, I have milk and ice cream in here. They're going to be melted by the time I get home. Have you ever waited in line at lunch? And especially like if you're waiting and you've been waiting in line for 10 minutes and you're The person in front of you finally gets to the front and has no idea what he wants and especially it's the worst when it's like at mcdonald's where it's like dude we've been to mcdonald's like a million times each in our lives why you need to think about what you want you should already know but it should be the same at every restaurant right it's just the the most frustrating when you have to wait and the worst problem is we when we don't know how long we have to wait i was on hold with a company recently to try to get a refund for airfare tickets and i was on hold for an hour and a half and when I finally got in touch with somebody, I, I, got, I got three minutes of talking and then I was hung up on. And that was the absolute worst because I am not going through that again to wait. Because that hour and a half was miserable for me. And I bet you have a similar story. But here's the good news is that when Jesus commands us to go to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach, to observe, and to know that... He also gives us a time that we can expect to stop waiting. Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon. But when is soon? The early church thought that soon was going to be within 10 years. The apostles, the original disciples of Jesus, thought that that there was only a couple more years to be had, maybe even a couple of months. And that's why they were so urgent in their spreading of the church and spreading of the gospels because they thought we only have just a little bit of time to do this and now we know in hindsight that that's not the case that the world still exists today in the year 2020 but they lived every single day every single second as if it was gonna be the last and frankly with the way that things are right now i'm not so sure that we're gonna see a 2021 and so maybe that it should be a little bit more urgency for us to, to carry out the work of Jesus. To Peter, James, John, Paul, none of these guys expected to be around for very long. They didn't expect Jesus to wait for this long, but they were diligent, they were faithful until the end. And so here's the world that we're left in, is that while we're waiting, we live our lives, that honor and praise Jesus, because he might return at any minute he might return right now as I'm recording this. He might return as you're listening to this. He might listen, He might return as you are in the shower tonight or in the morning. And that's a little bit of a weird reality to live in. But honestly, it's a pretty happy one. I mean, sure, when Jesus comes back, the world ends. But we'll we'll finally be done with all this pain, with all this misery. We'll be in a place where there is no such thing. But until that time comes, and it might be any second, our duty is to go to evangelize, to baptize, to teach, to observe, and to know, and to wait. Following the instructions that Paul gives to Titus to teach sound doctrine, to find out what sound doctrine actually is, to observe all of the qualities that we're told to be. Sober-minded, dignified self-control, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness, reverent behavior, not slanderers, not drunkards, to teach good, to love our spouses, to love our children, to love everybody, to be self-controlled, pure, to be submissive, to be servants, to be well-pleasing, to be non-argumentative, to not pilfer, but show good faith all the time in all manners, in all respects. And that is a hard challenge, but that is the one that we are left with. And I'm going to continue to fight for it every single day. I'm going to continue to try to strive to this. I'm going to continue to strive to the Great Commission. I'm going to continue to wait until there is no more waiting. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.